Let's go to Ecclesiastes chapter 10 and take up three lessons in a few minutes with each one. And we will thank the Lord for a good day in his house. Ecclesiastes chapter 10. You can stay attentive for a football game. You can stay attentive for movies. You can stay attentive in other things. I hope that you can stay attentive most of all for the word of God and for wisdom. Because more to be desired are they than much fine gold. And they're sweeter than honeycomb. And I I hope that we can see three lessons very quickly from these verses. And we will go home and put them into practice. I I promise you, just just give me your attention. It's not me. It's the words of the living God. I'm just his dumb ass. I will. Reputation and wisdom have to be guarded is the first lesson we want. Let's, let's break it down to two lessons. In verses 1 through 3, let me read them to you. Dead flies cause the ointment of the apothecary to send forth a stinking saver. So doth a little folly him that is in reputation for wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart is at his right hand. But a fool's heart at his left. Yea, also, when he that is a fool walketh by the way, his wisdom faileth him, and he saith to everyone that he is a fool. This is the word of the Lord. This is how to live. This is a philosophy of life. This is a book of wisdom. This is what you and I should walk out of this place to do, to be wise men in favor with God and men. Like Samuel like Jesus, and like Solomon tried to teach us by the inspiration of God. Dead flies in the ointment of an apothecary. An apothecary was a chemist or a druggist. That's the old English word for that particular craft. It's found in the Bible four times because it was the apothecary that had to make the compounds for the tabernacle worship of special ointments and perfumes. They could put together oils herbs and spices to make perfume and other ointments that were used in the worship of God or to decorate a bed for the the aromatic effect. You can read about that in Proverbs chapter 7. Or for a person to put on as ointment and perfume, rejoice the heart. Good cologne is a a blessing. You know, there are smells that turn turn our senses on and are very pleasant. We like to see things that turn our, our sight on. We hear good music. And so it is with an aroma of a good perfume or cologne. And so the apothecary has made a good ointment to anoint a person. It's a good perfume. It's an expensive cologne. But a few flies land in that perfume and they die. They drown. They swim mightily, but then they drown. And they're there and they corrupt. Their bodies decay And it sends forth a very different aroma than what the apothecary had intended. Because he hadn't intended on the bodies of flies corrupting in his perfume. Dead flies cause the ointment of the apothecary to send forth a stinking savour. From the good perfume you now have an ugly aroma. And this is a metaphor. You are to think about pleasant perfume or cologne being corrupted by the bodies of dead flies that are decaying in it. And from that, Solomon draws this metaphorical comparison. So, in the same way, something else stinks. So doth a little folly him that is in reputation for wisdom and honor. So the lesson 
of this verse is that if you do not guard your reputation, and if you do not guard your wisdom, and if you do not guard your honor, you can end up stinking. So we have a lesson for reputation in verse 1. And we want to think for a few minutes about keeping our reputations. Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Did he ever lose his favor with God and good men? Never. Did Daniel have a good reputation? We just had read to us. What a testimony. We have a new verb in the English language. It starts with V. It has to do with the election process in this country. Have you heard it? Vetting. Vetting. It means to hire lawyers, like our brother explained without using the word, to go into a person's past and try to dig up dirt on them. Everyone running for office except the one running for the Democratic Party is allowed to have his past dug into. That particular man is off limits for obvious reasons. But everyone else has their past vetted, meaning lawyers go and dig into the ones he went to school, they went to school with in the fifth grade, tenth grade, whatever, to find out every piece of dirt they can. Well, this isn't anything new. It happened in the kingdom of Persia under Darius. And they did it to Daniel. But when they went to dig into Daniel's past, they couldn't find anything. Okay, what about David? We read in 1 Samuel chapter 18 that David's name was much set by in Israel because he behaved himself wisely in all his ways. And Israel loved him because he went out and came in before them. Were there some dead flies in David's ointment? Yes. Were there a number of dead flies in David's ointment? Yes. And that gives us hope because that's part of the lesson here. That if we look at... Ecclesiastes 10.1, in the light of the rest of Scripture, we have to pull in several things because otherwise we're going to be very hopeless because every one of us have larger or smaller flies in our ointment. Have you ever heard the expression, even in English, he's got a fly in his ointment? Where do you think that came from? Right here. Nothing new under the sun, is there? But you've heard the expression before, haven't you? Here it is right here, fly in his ointment. So doth a little folly him that is in reputation for wisdom and honor. We don't need to talk about perfume or cologne anymore. I don't need to turn you to Exodus and show you the work of an apothecary, but it's all there. And how they made compounds, and Chris Carnell tell you all about it, because he used to make aromas and scents when he worked in Buffalo, which is near Union in South Carolina. But let's talk about reputation. In chapter 7 and verse 1, it says, A good name is better than precious ointment. In Proverbs chapter 22 and verse 1, it says, A good name is rather to be chosen than great riches and loving favor rather than silver and gold. But you can mess up that good name and you can mess up that loving favor by allowing folly into your life. You know, you can say the wrong thing at the wrong time or in the wrong way and mess up. You can be self-righteous sometime and mess up. You can sin in some public way and mess up. And you have a dead fly in your ointment and all of a sudden you stink instead of smelling good when we're talking about your reputation. So the, the lesson that Solomon is giving us here, if you want to maximize your life under the sun while you're on earth, while you live your 70 years, put forth diligent effort to make sure that you are careful to guard your reputation and not let folly slip in. Because a little folly stinks up the cologne. A little folly ruins your reputation. But can a reputation be recovered? Absolutely. We have more to say on that in a moment. Your reputation needs to be protected. 
or it needs to be restored or both because we want to be doing those things. A person with a good reputation, a reputation for wisdom and honor, guess what? Other people are looking to catch them in folly or sin more than others. People that are already fools, they don't care about. They're already a fool. But for somebody that's wise, other men are envious, they're jealous, they're bitter, they're scornful. So they look for flaws in that man's ointment. They look for flies in his ointment. The Bible warns us about them. Isaiah chapter 29, verses 20 and 21. These scorners, they're terrible. The Lord hates them. They try to make a man an offender for a word. They try to lay a trap for the just when he's giving rebukes. They look for faults. And so we've got to remember that. The Bible tells us that. Titus chapter 2. The, the Lord warned Paul to tell Titus to guard his ministry so that those that were his adversaries would have no evil thing to say about him. And this is what we want to do. This is something Solomon is teaching us in a book of philosophy as we approach 60 lessons in this book. Guard your reputation. If you want to live life successfully and live it to its ultimate best and live it in a way that pleases God and fulfills your time on earth and justifies the air that you breathe, then guard your reputation and keep it close. Right. Temperance. Temperance is moderation. That means the self-discipline that you do not go off to extremes in, in words or body language or actions is to be known to all men. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 5, let your moderation be known unto all men. Show your temperance, show your self-discipline to all men. Always be living with a guard up that you don't let your hair down, as the expression goes, and say or do something that damages your reputation. Consistency. I preached on it on a Wednesday evening a couple of months ago. Consistency is what gives a person a reputation. They can be counted on because they are constantly a certain way. And that's what we want to do. We want to constantly be people of faith. We want to constantly be gracious. We want to constantly be loving and serving. We want to constantly be hardworking and diligent. We want to constantly be full of thanksgiving and praise. We want to constantly be what the Bible shows us to be. Consistency helps make your reputation. Ruling your spirit. What causes us to lose our reputation? It's a loss of control over our spirit. That spirit can blow up at home. It can blow up in the car on the way home. Wait till I get to verse 20 of chapter 10. Oh, I'm not doing it today, but we're going to get there. We're going to, the Lord is going to come after you and Solomon is going to come after you that if you say something on the way home from these assemblies or if you say something in your bedroom even to your wife or if you think it even in your thought, he is going to arrange for a bird of the air to take that message and spread it broadly because you, are, you have a wicked heart. So the, the, the rule is, not even at home, not even in the bedroom, not even in the car on the way home, guard your thoughts, guard your speech. It's when we don't rule our spirit that we get into trouble. Proverbs 14 and verse 29 would, would say it this way. Proverbs 14, 29. He that is slow to wrath is of great understanding. That's a wise man. That man is in wisdom and has a, wisdom, has a reputation of wisdom and honor. But he that is hasty of spirit exalteth folly. If you get mad quickly, if you get upset quickly, if you speak quickly, you exalt folly. You're, you're not, you don't have dead flies in the ointment of the apothecary. You just have dead flies. Because you don't even have any cologne to start with. If you don't rule your spirit. Not ruling your spirit is a terrible thing in the Bible. We have to control our anger, bitterness, hatred, wrath, malice, envy, 
and all those wicked things that churn in the old man, we need to put them all off and put on the new man. Ruling your spirit. How about your speech? You know, the Bible says in Proverbs 17, 27 and 28, that if a man holds his speech back and limited, holds his speech back and limits his words, he will be esteemed a man of wisdom and understanding. Words give away a fool faster than anything else. The words that pop out of his mouth, the words that pop off your fingers on a keyboard, the words that pop off when you're text messaging, the words that come out of you. That's the easiest way to spot a fool. What'd they say? How self-serving was it? How wrong was it? How malicious was it? How much whispering was there? How much boasting was there? Words give us away. So if we want to keep a reputation, we've got to guard our speech first. Because speech gives up a fool quickest. As soon as we get to verses 11 through 15 in this chapter, it's going to be about the speech of a fool because his mouth is full of words. He's like a babbler. He's like a serpent that hasn't been enchanted. He's messed up in his speech. We want to guard our language. We don't want to blow off and say something negative or critical to someone. That's from hell. Go read James chapter 3. It'll tell you very plainly where it's from. That's from hell. That wisdom descendeth not from above, but from beneath. So we've got to guard our speech in order to protect our reputations and have that reputation like Samuel, Daniel, and Jesus that grew in favor with God and men. Now, once you've blown your reputation, once you've had some folly in your life, little or small folly, can you get over it? Did the Corinthian church have some folly? They had a lot of folly. Look, at if you've ever read 1 Corinthians... You know that every chapter Paul goes through is another part of folly in the part of the church at Corinth. But when he gets to 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and he defines repentance, and he defines it in seven glorious expressions, listen, look at the effect it has. 2 Corinthians 7.11, listen carefully to seven descriptions or aspects of repentance and the effect that it has. For behold this selfsame thing, that ye sorrowed after a godly sort... What carefulness it wrought in you. Yea, what clearing of yourselves. Yea, what indignation. Yea, what fear. Yea, what vehement desire. Yea, what zeal. Yea, what revenge. Exclamation point. In all things, ye have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. Isn't that great? You get to pour the ointment of the apothecary through a, through a sieve. And get the dead flies out of it and start over again. God, the God of heaven, the God of the Bible, is the God of second chances and the God of starting over again. That's right. David got to start over with the Lord several times. Murder, adultery, numbering Israel and costing 70,000 lives, moving the Ark of the Covenant the wrong way, and costing one life, not training his sons right. But still, God had no man, no king of Israel, that could compare to David in the Old Testament. His son is called the son of David because David, by repentance, restored himself. God gave him a new heart, a right spirit back within him, and he went on teaching righteousness. Sinners were converted. David was restored. His ointment, his cologne, his perfume was back to purity. The Bible is so wonderful and comforting for all sinners because Jesus loves losers. The ones that came to Jesus and repented and fell at his feet, they had bottles with so many dead flies in them. But the Lord Jesus Christ allowed them to pour that ointment through the sieve of His grace and His righteousness, and they had fresh ointment to start over with. How many in here love Mary Magdalene? 
Amen. Amen. To love Mary Magdalene. Did she have some flies in her ointment? Oh, yes. But who took them out? The great apothecary, the Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Because there's mercy with the Lord. So two things let's, we've learned so far. Oh, oh, there's so much more that could be said. Are you, are you quick to say you're sorry? Do you know what? Before the, before the fly drowns, while it's swimming and flapping on the top of your cologne, do you know how to say, I'm sorry. I was stupid. I was foolish. I was wrong. Will you please forgive me? Do you know what? You can pick that little thing up. And throw it out of your cologne and then you can step on it or throw it in the toilet and flush it, hit the silver lever and send it for a swim. You can do that. But how many of you are able to say, I'm sorry to your spouse, to your children? If you're wrong to your children, are you able to say you're sorry to your children? You think that loses authority? That gains authority and respect. If you're unable to do it, they know you can't do it and they know you're wrong. They know you have so many flies that you can hardly see the ointment. I'm sorry to your wife. I'm sorry to your husband. I'm sorry to your children. I'm sorry to your parents. I'm sorry to your boss. I'm sorry to a brother in the church, a sister in the church. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have blown up that way. I shouldn't have said those things. I was wrong. Are you able to do that? That's how you restore a reputation. Are you able to do it quickly? It does not reduce your authority. It does not reduce your reputation. It adds to your reputation. I'd rather be a sinner forgiven by the grace of God than to be someone who lives in their own self-righteousness and doesn't have the forgiveness of God in their life. I'd rather be a David, a forgiven adulterer and murderer, a million times over King Saul, who was faithful to his wife. A million times over. You know what? God says the same thing. God hated Saul, pounded him through his life, but loved David. Do you all understand that? David could resurrect, restore his reputation, and every one of you can as well. Mary Magdalene could. The Lord Jesus Christ appeared first of all to Mary Magdalene. Did Peter restore his reputation? Yes. I see ten apostles sitting in Acts chapter 1 with Peter taking over that council of apostles and telling them what they ought to do to get this church of the New Testament rolling. Dead flies cause the ointment of the apothecary to send forth a stinking saver. So does a little folly, him that is in reputation for wisdom and honor. Let's guard our reputations. Let's be like the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's be like Daniel. Is Daniel one of the five great men in the Bible? Amen. Where are the five great men found? Do you know what books of the Bible have those five great men? Jeremiah 15.1 and Ezekiel 14.14 have five great men. Besides Daniel, who else is there? Samuel. Was Samuel like the Lord... Did he grow in favor with God and men? Who else? Noah. Who else? Moses. Noah. Job. Great men. Oh, that's what we want to be like. Did, did, did Noah blow it on occasion? Did Moses blow it on occasion? Did Moses have a fly in his ointment? What was it? Struck a rock when the Lord told him to speak to it. Did he suffer a little bit for it? Is he still one of God's greatest men of the Old Testament? Isn't that comforting? Was he had in reputation for wisdom and honor? Was he always had in reputation for wisdom and honor? Yes, yes, yes. Do we still consider him a leader in wisdom and honor? Yes. Thank you, Lord. Let's go to verses 2 and 3. A wise man's heart is at his right hand and a fool's heart at his left. Yea, also, when he that is a fool walketh by the way, his wisdom faileth him. 
and he saith to everyone that he is a fool. The person in verse 1 is a wise man. He's held in reputation for wisdom and honor. The, the person in verses 2 and 3 is a fool, and it's being compared to a wise man. Now, what does verse 2 mean? Here's another metaphor. A wise man's heart is at his right hand. In the Bible, the Lord assumes something. He assumes that most people are right-handed. And I'm sorry for all you people that are left-handed. Please don't send me any emails. The Lord loves you just as much as the right-handers. There's no difference at all. He just made you a little different, and so you've got to reverse some of, these, some of these Bible verses. But understand that the, the most people are right-handed. So, where do you put something that you want to get your hands on quickly? Which hand is the most coordinated hand? Which hand is the most dexterous, the most useful, the most practical, the one that you use to guide you the most? Your right hand. If you have a sword on and you're right-handed, which hand moves first? Which hand moves in a coordinated way? Your right hand. If you're on a throne, now think Bible. Think Bible because you've never seen a throne. You've never seen authority. But think Bible. If you have a throne and a king on the throne, where does he put his most trusted prince, the one that he relies on the most that will execute all of his pleasure, in whom he has great delight? Where does he put him? On his right hand. A wise man's heart is on his right hand. It's in his place of honor. It's in his place of privilege. It's right where he can use it the best. It's like a sword to be grabbed with the right hand and used. A wise man follows his wise heart. He's in close connection with it. Trying to save time. Do you know the verses that say things like this from the book of Proverbs? A wise man's heart teacheth his lips. Yes. Because a wise man's heart is at his right hand. Before he says anything, something so close and something so connected to him stops his speech and directs him to say something wisely. Now a fool's heart is at his left hand. He's disconnected to it. He can't, gri- he can't grab it when he needs it. He should grab it when he needs it, but he can't. He misses it. Can you do much? What, what do you look like when you throw a football with your left hand? I'm not asking for you guys that are left-handed or ambidextrous. You right-handers, when you throw a football with your left hand, do you look like a little fifth-grade girl? Do you? If you were to put a little skirt on me and give me a football and tell me to throw it with my left hand, I would look like a little fifth-grade girl. It's totally different because it's not very coordinated. Well, that's the fool. He's got his heart at his left hand. They don't connect. He doesn't communicate with it. He can't grab it when he needs it. And so he ends up in foolishness. It's a little metaphor. How close are you to your heart? And is your heart taught by the Word of God so that your heart can teach your lips, teach your spirit, teach your body language, slow you down, and help you do what is right? Or is your heart at your left hand and things get out before your heart can even say anything? And you're not very connected to it. Let's go to the third verse. Much more can be said. Verses can be raised. Yes, there's lots of verses in the Bible about the right hand, who sits at the right hand. Do you know what David said? Psalm 137. It's not David. It's a psalmist talking about being led captive by the Babylonians. He said, Lord, let me forget the cunning of my right hand. Your right hand, if you're right-handed, should be better than your left hand. Do not... Let me forget the cunning of my right hand if I forget Jerusalem, my chief love. Are you familiar with those little words over there? There's a whole lot more. But do you, do you, know, what, do you know what the psalmist always called on God to reach forth on their behalf? When, when was the last person to ask God to reach forth his left hand and help him? You, you laugh because it's so amusing. It's always the right hand because the Bible... Isn't that amazing? All the references about the Lord reaching forth his 
right hand. Because you want that, you want that big right hand from a right hander. You want the Lord reaching forth his right hand to save us. It's a metaphor. It's, it's how much does you, how, how close is your heart and connected to you? And is it in a place of honor and in a place of position where it's useful to you? That, those are the things that are being said by the metaphor. Is your heart, does your heart guide you in what you say, do throughout the week? Is it there to help you? A wise man's heart is right there. A left man, a, a, a foolish man's heart is at his left hand. He can't really get a hold of it when he needs it. Verse 3, yea, also, in addition to that misconnection and disconnection they have in verse 2, yea, also, when he that is a fool walketh by the way, his wisdom faileth him, and he saith to everyone that he is a fool. Solomon here is ridiculing fools by saying when he walketh by the way. That's the simplest thing you ever do in life. You walk from point A to point B. But a fool, even in walking from point A to point B, in the simplest challenge of life, let's not call it a challenge, the simplest activity of life, he ends up telling everyone that he's a fool. He can't even control himself while he's on a short walk. His body language, his haughtiness, his arrogance, his flippancy shows that he's a fool. If you listen, he doesn't know how to meditate, muse, and remember things. A wise man, when he's on a walk, is walking soberly and consciously, enjoying God's creation around him, remembering the works of God, meditating on them in his heart, musing about them. That's Psalm 143 and verse 5. But a fool doesn't do that, even when he's walking by the way, which is the simplest activity of life. If you come up beside the fool and ask him a question, you get a foolish response. Because he tells you, he wants to tell you that he's a fool. Yea, also, when he that is a fool walketh by the way, his wisdom faileth him. Wisdom doesn't keep him under control, sober about what the day's activities should bring forth. There's a God in heaven that he should be pleasing. He doesn't think those kind of thoughts. If someone comes up, he doesn't know how to feed them any wisdom. He just responds with foolishness. Jesting and joking is more important to him. And the Bible tells us that foolish talking is a wicked thing. If you were to ask this fool a question on the way while you're walking to town... And say, you know, I've got this dilemma at home. Here's the situation. And you lay it out in three minutes, you get nothing from this fool. Nothing of value. Because he's ready to tell you that he's a fool. Yea, also, a fool doesn't have anything to offer. And he reveals rather quickly that he's a fool. Well, what do we want to get from that third verse? We don't want to be like that. We want to learn the Word of God, get it, hold it in our hearts, prepare it in our hearts, let it, let it get fitted in our lips, so that whenever we're speaking without people inquiring, or when people have asked us questions, we are able to give back wise and sober answers with the certain words of truth from the Bible. The man in verse 3, the fool, is never going to be in verse 1. Unless he humbles himself completely 100% to the Word of God. Because then, the testimonies of the Lord are sure, making wise the simple. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. My high school career was in verse 3. So was my junior high school career. Verse 2, a wise man's heart is his right hand. How connected is your heart to your life? And does it help lead you and guide you in the ways of the Lord? A, right, a wise man's heart knoweth time and judgment. And it should direct your life. Because we want the reputation of verse 1. Verse 4. Verse 4, very quickly, because there's a great deal of practical wisdom in this verse, even if the President of the United States or the Governor, or the, the governor of South Carolina or the Mayor of Greenville is not mad at you. Ecclesiastes 10.4, If the spirit of the ruler rise up against thee, 
Leave not thy place, for yielding pacifieth great offenses. The spirit of the ruler rises up against you. When a spirit rises up, that means it's angry and intends you harm. You can find it throughout the Psalms where David speaks about those that had risen up against him that he wanted the Lord to come and avenge him upon them by punishing his enemies. When the spirit of the ruler rises up against you, that means the spirit, the ruler is angry. The ruler is offended. Now this ruler, we can start with a king and we can work down to magistrates. We can work down to a traffic officer at your window. We can work down to your husband. We can work down to your father. We can work down to your master. We can work down to a pastor. You can work down to whatever authority you want to think about. If the spirit of that ruler is angry at you, there's a way to handle it. This is a book of philosophy on how to live and be wise. Wives, when your husband is upset at you, it is not the time to fight back and argue back and explain and defend yourself and tell him all the hundred reasons you have for being having done something wrong. That is not effective. That is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible is going to teach you right now on how to deal with authority. If the spirit of the ruler rises up against thee, leave not thy place. Don't leave your chair, your house, or your station in life to go fight. How do we know that that's what it means? By the next clause that says for yielding. So we know that whatever it means in leave not thy place it means to yield. So that means don't leave your don't leave your house. Don't go out. Don't go to Washington and fight. Don't go downtown Greenville to city offices and fight the mayor of Greenville. Leave not thy place. For yielding pacifieth great offenses. The first clause says if the spirit of the ruler rises up against thee, why is the ruler angry at you? Because of your great offenses in the third clause. For yielding pacifieth great offenses. How can you cover the offense that you've created causing them to be offended with you? How do you cover that? How do you appease them? How do you slow down their wrath? By not leaving your place. Because you have a place under them and so you submit. Rulers generally do not get upset with citizens for no cause. The only people that think that are brute beasts need to be taken out and destroyed. Do you know why rulers in general don't get upset with every citizen? Because you're not worth it. Because there's too many of you. Because they don't have the time and they like doing other things better and it's not good for the next election. So the average president, the average governor, the average mayor doesn't even know you exist. And they don't get upset at you. This is you've offended somebody and now they're upset at you. What are you going to do about it? Don't leave your place. If your place is as a submissive wife, don't leave it. Don't leave it and try to take your husband on face to face. God never called you to do that. If you're sitting in a car and a police officer is at your window and says that you were just doing 65 in a 45 but your speedometer said 63, don't engage him in debate. Don't leave your place. You were speeding, take his ticket. Yielding pacifies great offenses. You want to argue with him a little bit, he can pull you out of the car and do a few more things to you. Can he? It's not worth it. Right. And so we have wisdom here in one little verse. And I love this verse. This verse is taught in Proverbs, this verse is taught in Ecclesiastes chapter 8. Do you remember what it said in chapter 8? I counsel thee to keep the king's commandment, and that in regard to the oath of God, be not hasty to go out of his sight. Stand not in an evil thing. For he that doeth what he doeth whatsoever pleaseth him where the word of a king is there is power and who may say unto him what doest thou don't leave your place and fight with someone in authority children if you've offended your parents 
do you, do you want to hear a simple solution to get it all over with really, really fast and make it really, really hard for them to discipline you? Go and thoroughly tell them that you were an idiot, you were a fool, that they are very wise, that their rules were very acceptable and very godly and helpful, and that you just blew it, and you are very, very sorry, and that you will never do it again, and that you love them as parents, and you're thankful to God that they have taken a role in your life to give you rules, and that you were wrong, and that you were foolish, and that you were stupid. Yes, I know I've said those things already. It just sounds good to a parent. It just sounds good. So do it. If you're a wife, go say that. You say, he'd walk all over me. Well, maybe he should. Quit using excuses not to be what the Bible says you should be. Go and say you were wrong. If the spirit of the ruler rise up against thee, leave not thy place. For yielding pacifieth great offenses. If you will yield and give. Do you know what the verse is in Proverbs twenty-five, fifteen? Here's how it's worded. By long forbearing, a prince is persuaded. How do you get someone in authority to see things your way? By putting up with their way for a long time. By long forbearing, a prince is persuaded, and a soft tongue breaketh the bone. You want to break a prince's bone? Do you want to get him to do things your way? Do you want, to, do you want him to see your position in the matter? A soft tongue. The Bible says in Proverbs 15:1, grievous words stir up anger. It's a soft tongue that turns away anger. It takes two to fight, and you don't want to fight government. Government's bigger than you. Government's on God's side, even if they're pagan. Yep. Right. Don't fight government. Don't fight parents, even when a parent is wrong. I'm not talking about worshiping Buddha in the backyard. No parent in here has yet asked you to go out and kiss fat Buddha's belly. No parent in here has ever done that. Yes, they're going to make decisions that may not be the best. They may be wrong in matters of liberty. But a good child is going to submit to them anyway. For yielding pacifies great offenses. Now, this is when you've done something wrong. Children, I just gave you a secret. You know, when my children write me one of these long... Uh, they don't do it anymore, but... When they used to write me these letters and I'd find them under my pillow. Oh, Daddy, I'm so sorry. And I'm not making fun of any of you children. Daddy, I'm so sorry I was wrong. I was stupid. I was sinful. I have a wicked heart. I don't know why you put up with me. I don't, you've put up with me for so long. I've done. Oh, where is he? Where is he? Does he want the keys to the car? What does he want? <laughs> Wife, isn't that the way it is? What, what does this guy want to do? Get a pound of flesh out of them? Or do they have me around their little finger? I want to run to him, embrace him, and say, listen, let's just go celebrate. Let's forget it all. Any of my sons that, that have done that to me, and my daughters, you were practicing Ecclesiastes 10.4. You offended me by your offenses. Your yielding pacified me. You didn't leave your place. You didn't try to fight. You gave in, and we blew it away. And I only remember those events with pleasure now because of your spirit and heart of wanting to correct it a Bible way. There are many other verses I've just quoted to you and read to you, chapter 8, verses 3 through 5, that tell us the same thing. Don't fight city hall. Don't fight government. Don't fight a king. Do you know how many verses there are in the book of Proverbs that say the wrath of a king is as the roar of a lion? You are crazy to mess with a king. You're crazy to mess with someone in authority. God is always going to be on the side of authority. God is always on the side of husbands. God is always on the side of fathers. God is always on the side of magistrates. God is always on the side of pastors. God is always on the side of masters. 
He's always going to be on their side. Now listen, when, that, when those masters do something wicked and put your life in jeopardy, then we'll talk about God being on your side. But until that happens, and it hasn't happened to you, then you should just submit to the authority God's put in your life and yielding pacifieth great offenses. This is when you've done something wrong. The spirit of the, of the person in authority over you has risen up against you. Yielding pacifies it. Don't leave your place. Don't fight them. The anger of a king is as messengers of death. But his favor is as dew on the grass. To have the favor of someone in authority. And you know how to get that? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I was wrong. And back down. Back. I'm sorry I was wrong. There's so much wisdom in this for wives, children. I'm telling you, it's right here. And it's simple. So many holler about principle because they want to fight it in principle. It's not principle they're fighting for. It's pride. Back down and trust God who put that person in authority and brought about the circumstances that you're in and say you're sorry and write it to them. Write it to them again the next day. Write it to them the third day. Do you know what? You can never say you're sorry too many times. Do you know how you know when you've said I'm sorry enough times when they tell you stop saying that. Say it one more time and quit. It's just, pre- it's just the wisdom of God's word. Are you able to do that? Wise men learn how to pacify those in authority. Listen to to it. The wrath of a king is as messengers of death. But a wise man will pacify it. Proverbs 16, 14. The wrath of a king is as messengers of death. Somebody in authority can make your life miserable if you want to fight them. The wrath of a king is as messengers of death. But a wise man will pacify it. Do you know what we're in the book of Ecclesiastes for? To learn wisdom. Do you know how you learn wisdom? When somebody's upset at you in authority, back down. Don't leave your place and go out in the street and fight them. Don't leave your station. Don't leave your chair. Wife, don't jump out of your chair. Don't let the hair bristle on the back of your neck. Do you know what that says you are? What species you are? Don't do that. Back down. You're right. I'm wrong. Forcing wrath just creates more trouble. The Bible says... If we twist the nose, what are we going to get? Blood. So the forcing of wrath is going to bring forth strife. All you're going to do is make the fight worse. We're to be peacemakers. Are we pacifists as Christians? Absolutely. In the sense described here, we are pacifists. Do you know where I'm getting the word pacifist from? I'm getting it from a wise man will pacify it. We are pacifists. We want to back down when authority is offended with us. If it, comes to, if it comes to telling us that we can't do something God's commanded us to do, or they command us to do something God's told us not to do, we aren't going to be very much pacifists. That's right. We will trust the Lord when that day comes, but right now we're not facing it. Right, right. It takes two to fight, and it's impossible to fight with a pillow. Back down. Do you know what the Bible says? i got something even better. After you're done saying you're sorry ten times, and they tell you, stop saying it, I've already forgiven you for that. Do you know what you can do next? A gift in secret pacifieth anger. I like the words. Are we pacifists? A gift in secret pacifieth anger and a reward in the bosom, strong wrath. You can get rid of anger in another person by giving them a gift in secret. If you gave it openly, they know you're doing it for show. So you slip it to them secretly because I love you, because I'm thankful for you. I'm sorry for offending you. Do you know how peaceful the world could be? Who's the last person you offended and the spirit of someone's risen up against you that you can go to and clear it the Bible way? 
reputation, wisdom, how to deal with authority. Ecclesiastes 10, 1 through 4. We started out this day with Psalm 19. More to be desired are they than gold. In case you're not impressed, the Spirit went on to say, Yea, much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. More to be desired. Do you desire the precepts of God's Word? If you were to read Ecclesiastes 10.4 about dealing with authority, and you were to go look up cross-references to it, I'll help you with them. I'm sorry the outline isn't out there yet, but if you want them this afternoon, call me, ask me, I'll, write it, I'll, I'll give you whatever I've got so that you can look at cross-references and lay hold of that wisdom. That is the way I'm going to deal with authority from now on. There is tension in our home. There is bitterness there. there. We fight too easily. I know that I'm not practicing the yielding and I'm not being a pacifist like I should be. I want to learn how to be that better. You know, the human, human nature says, if I'm a pacifist, then I'm going to get walked all over. That is such a carnal, foolish, profane, earthly view of things because it forgets the God of heaven and how the God of heaven will bless you for submitting to the authority that he ordained and the person that is in that authority that he put over you because God arranged all those things. And if you will humble yourself before it, he'll take care of you. If you try to take care of it, then that means you're fighting authority and it's just going to get worse because they are his messengers of death. You will ruin your life. You want to bless your life? Submit to authority. Say you're sorry as many times as it takes. Be thorough in your repentance. Give a gift in secret. Trust the Lord. He'll take care of you. More could be said. I hope that's helpful. Amen. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. Amen.